I enjoy reading G.K. Chesterton and his viewpoint on what it is to be female and have the beauty of being able to be a mother and to open up the universe to your children and the role that you play. To read him and then to read where the church was at, it it gives you a completely different perspective than what a Margaret Sanger would have you believe (laughs) the woman's role was. So the church, as it was growing, even into Vatican II. And as you point out, in 1983, the revisions of canon law even helped define even more fully that dignity and the personhood of females. And I thought the, the part in canon law was important uh, for me to write up because it, seem, it seems important to say that uh, men and women have exactly the same rights as members of the baptized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's actually no, uh, no significant difference canonically and therefore equal rights as members of the baptized, and the vocation to the priesthood is something entirely different, of a different difference in kind, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> specific uh, for the sake of the whole church, but not not a right that anybody has. So many people think, well, women can't be ordained, but any man could, could receive, you know, seven sacraments, and women can only receive six, and, and they say things like that, and of course, not every man has a vocation to the priesthood. Not every man would be accepted if he applied. It requires a vocation. It's really quite distinct. And the failure to uh, notice that it's not just women who aren't ordained, but it's you know, the difference, the distinction in kind, difference in kind is between lay persons and ordained persons, not men and women. I think that's very important. I mean, you're very clear in how you write this out, the argumentation on this. Like, one of the objections is that women are unjustly prohibited from access to public leadership roles in the church. And as you point out, priesthood is not the only form of public leadership. But then, even more important, priesthood is not simply a leadership position. Exactly, yeah. That's really the big thing, that it really is a very specific vocational call, and it's a sacramental um, it's conferred by a sacrament, which is distinct from baptism, and it really has its own special character, and therefore it's appropriate that it have its own special outward sign, which would be the person of the priest. It's a theological argument. They would say it's faulty anthropology, that somehow women are being excluded by the Church. But again, that confuses the theological arguments with, as you point out, their, their fundamental reasons. And the fundamental reason is not that men are different than women or that men can't represent Jesus. The fundamental reason is that Christ gave this sacrament to the Church, and we, that according to the long-standing and unbroken tradition, this was given only for men. Uh, that this is his, this is his will, represented by his choice of twelve men as his apostles. Well, and another thing that kind of messes us up sometime in in our understanding is that there's a Protestant objection that it runs counter to, as you point out, the radical equality established by baptism. Yes. And that confuses us as Catholics because um, that doesn't follow our Catholic doctrine on ordained ministry. Exactly. That was one of the that was one of the issues at the Reformation, and that's again not very familiar to people. They haven't studied any of this and. Uh, they don't understand that, that the Reformers rejected the idea that Holy Orders was a sacrament mm-hmm. for everything for them depends on baptism uh, with regard to ministry. And ministry comes with baptism, and in principle, any baptized person could step up to the altar in an emergency or with some authorization. Uh, it's not necessary to be ordained in, in the sacramental way that Catholics understand that. 
And some of those differences, too, sister, may be that uh, the way that after the Reformation that they looked at marriage. So, I mean, a lot of us out there who are married couples in the Catholic Church, that's a sacrament. Yes. Um, in many of the Protestant denominations, it's looked more upon as a civil union. That's right, or, or a, um, a union of, of, from the first covenant, really, you know, a natural ordin- ordinance of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, that those, not knowing some of those differences uh, would make it difficult for people to to apprehend why it would be why it would be okay to be ordained in a Protestant church but not in a Catholic church. You know, people assume that you're doing the same functions, and they look at women who are ordained in some other church, and they think, well, why couldn't Catholic women do the same thing? It, it seems so sort of obvious to them, but they aren't making that other step. They aren't taking the other step where you notice that. The understanding of ordained ministry is quite different. Right. And I think that's very important. I think sometimes for us as lay people, we have to appreciate that holy orders is also our sacrament. Not that we are called to be ordained, but we are ministered to by those who have been called to that. It's not that we're being denied. It's just that we are not called to be imprensata Christi as Christ. Well, yes. And it's really that the priesthood is at the service of the baptized, mm-hmm. and that it is a special gift from Christ to be, uh, to that some men are called to be ministers of his ministry, uh, ministers of his uh, word and sacrament to the rest of the baptized. So it is for our sake and our holiness that, that they are called. Mm-hmm. That was in that, that early document from Paul the uh, sixth, where he says, um, the goal of the Christian life is not to be a priest, but to be a saint. Right. And yep. I think uh, if you understand that the priests are those men called by Christ to serve us in our goal, in reaching that goal, then you have a totally different perspective on it. But in the public sphere, it looks like they're just, you know, public leaders taking a, uh, a role of, of governance and so on with respect to other people. So it's not easy to, to discern behind that this special understanding of, of the priestly office. Paul VI certainly had a, a lot of challenges, didn't he? I mean, first with Humanae Vitae and then also responding yeah. to this. <laughs> yeah. And he wasn't always clearly understood or maybe not clearly taught by those who were in charge of helping the faithful come to grips with all this. Right. Well, it was really uh, counterintuitive, uh, you know, what he had to say. It was, it was counter the cultural mood, and, and it was very hard for people to defend it when they didn't understand it themselves. I, I think you have to say that all of these things were coming in you know, um, kind of a crowd uh, after the Second Vatican Council. So many, so many changes were taking place, and people who had been prepared, let's say, as priests or bishops beforehand uh, just weren't equipped to interpret this well, and they were under a lot of pressure uh, to re- dissent, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. from, from people who thought it was crazy, including number of theologians who, who didn't give a very good lead. I think what really helped, for me anyway, personally, Sister Sarah, was the theology of the body by John Paul. Because once I began to really understand the uniqueness and the dignity of each person in our creation as male and female, and how that complements, it really helped. And I, and I get a sense that that also was a part of what helped you to come to understand it as well. Well, yes and no. Uh, yes, in the sense that uh, once I saw that, I realized the kind of reductive approach to sexual difference that was being promoted by feminists uh, that I knew. 
And so I became dissatisfied with that, and I, I found that the allergy of the body very satisfying and helpful. But then it, then it, I really saw that that wasn't the argument. I mean, while that contributes to understanding why our Lord may have chosen men and not women, and therefore after you accept that principle, it works. Mm-hmm. If people think that that's the reason why women can't be ordained, because we are different uh, in uh, complementary ways, then they're they're just going to keep on being stymied by that because they assume that if that's the reason, uh, that's if if it was about marriage we could understand it. But why would why would this be some kind of obstacle with regard to the priesthood? He's not going to do anything involving you know his own male sexuality in that sense. Mm-hmm. People uh, they're honestly stumped by that. You know, <laughs> yeah. they say I understand the theology of the body. That's very nice, but I don't. I still don't understand why it would make so. So much difference for the priesthood because the priest, after all, is not doing anything, you know, like the um, fathering a child or something, you know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. And so then you then you say, well, you know, that that's all very important, but it's after after you accept that the sacrament was instituted by Jesus Christ and and it's related to the call of the twelve and the call of the twelve is the prototype of the ordained ministry in the church. You know, after you accept that, then those other arguments. Uh, are very helpful, right. and understanding that theology, the theology of the body becomes very, very useful. But if you approach it by means of that, it doesn't work. That's my experience, anyway. Yeah, there are many who would say that that Jesus's choice of the twelve men is irrelevant. Well, that's that's really the key. That is really the key question because why did why are they saying that? Is it because they? If they're Protestants and they've rejected the sacrament of holy orders, well, that's not surprising because that's what they—that's part of the rejection, you know—was that there was that this is instituted by Christ and it represents a different kind of ministry than that of the baptized. So we shouldn't be surprised if they think that. But why are Catholics saying that? Well, it has—you know—there are about forty different reasons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but some of them have to do with just a reconsideration of how the origins of the, you know, the biblical um, def- de- defense of the origins of Christian priesthood, how that works, and how you could make some, uh, could you reconstruct the history of the uh, priestly ordination and apostolic succession adequately from the text. So people using historical critical methods uh, begin to be suspicious about that. And if they're ideological feminists, then they begin to think this is just a vast conspiracy, you know, to keep women out or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they could be they could be people who are, again, just really honestly puzzled because they've read books about ordained ministry written by Catholic theologians that suggest that we really don't understand what the difference between baptism and ordination is. And, and uh, you know, this is just a great puzzle. So some people have adopted a kind of a agnosticism about, about the institution of the sacrament. And... Uh, you know, some have been leading, you know, well-known theologians. So this doesn't this doesn't help people accept the fundamental reasons. Uh, once you get shaky on the fundamental reasons, then you're left only with the sort of theological arguments uh, from fitting this, and they don't satisfy, and and they're not meant to ground the teaching. So, from some of those theologians, I think when you look at their argumentation, as though it's as though they have thrown out tradition from the beginning, and that's what really hurts when they go back to try to figure this out. They just don't even they don't even use tradition as part of their method. 
partly, you know, I think that comes from the um, the ecumenical dialogue. You know, I've been in the dialogue since about 1972, and when you're in the ecumenical dialogue, you realize that we're trying to start uh, with a common ground, so we all go back to the scripture, and then we try to use the contemporary methods of scriptural study and to, to justify and, and explain what we believe, you know, from the common text of the scripture. So many people in doing that have kind of lost track of how tradition weighs in. Mm-hmm. And then some people, you know, have been, who have who have just concluded uh, a priori, you know, they have concluded that women ought to be ordained because it seemed just. They they then use that kind of argumentation to back up their uh, hesitation about affirming what the Church has always taught about this. And so they don't want to appeal to a tradition. But uh, then if they're Protestants, they don't appeal to tradition because they've that's not part of their method. You know? mm-hmm. right. So, yeah. um, many uh, many of the ecumenical discussions in from the seventies and eighties and nineties, uh, which were trying to reach a kind of new consensus about ordained ministry, uh, were quite uh, optimistic about the fact that we really could agree on this. And I think it is only the issue of women's ordination that makes it clear that we actually don't have as much agreement as appeared. Mm. So it looked like there was a really strong agreement with Anglicans, for example. Uh, because we had settled all the Reformation problems, but we didn't address this problem, and we couldn't. We couldn't get an agreement on it, uh, because we discovered we really hadn't got to the bottom of the Reformation problem. And when you look at what's uh, occurred in the Anglican Church since then, mm-hmm. um, because of this particular issue, you have to wonder if this is if that was a fruitful uh, revelation for them because there seems to be such discord amongst the Church in the Anglican community now. Well, it is a problem that they have with, they don't really have the machinery for making a decision that holds, you know, that mm-hmm. their, their, their uh, it, mechanisms for consultation and decision-making are very wide open, and they're, so they're just, just very vulnerable to cultural movements and to advocacy groups that just insist, 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 and they finally capitulate because mm-hmm. no one can really say no. They, they don't have a teaching authority that, that works in this way, and mm-hmm. and the teaching authority that we have is tied into holy orders and the idea that holy orders is a gift from Christ and therefore the bishops and the Pope teaching authoritatively are really giving us truth that we can hold on to and we can rely on their judgment uh, without a teaching, without someone exercising that kind of teaching authority you're very, very vulnerable to, uh, to say cultural movements and pressure groups yeah. and I think that's what uh, has happened. Well, there we go with the beauty of having the chair of Peter and someone in it to keep us all That's together. Right. Well, it is. That's what the Cardinal Newman said, you know. He said, you can't stop ideas. The, the mind is just wild, you know, keeps coming up with new ideas. You can't stop people from trying things out and thinking new thoughts. And and uh, the only way to function as a group is, is to have a referee, somebody mm-hmm. who's authorized to make a decision. And if uh, so there's kind of a... I forget what he called it, but there's kind of an anticipation that the Lord would provide such an office, and he did. Yeah. He really did. Sister, I just have to touch just on a couple of another objections that were given to me as as teachings when I was, again, going through my formation. And one was that women were apostles in the early church. And, of course, the example that was used was Romans 16, 7, which was that the name of Juna, 
and that she, uh, Paul refers to her as an outstanding apostle. Mm-hmm. And what was so helpful for me is that, again, it's important not to look at the apostles as a group as opposed to the 12. That is a sort of a sticky point because there are, there are some places in which the 12 are identified as apostles and some places where the apostles represent a larger group. And so th- there's a kind of an overlap between the 12 and apostles uh, def- uh, defined as a larger group, including Paul and so on. And uh, the, so the scholarly the discourse about whether well, Junia should be uh, identified as an apostle in that larger group or what that would mean, uh, that has that has opened the door for lots of speculation, but I mm-hmm. think, uh, you have to say that even if St. John Chrysostom thought she was an apostle, which he evidently did, uh, he didn't think that her apostolic office was the same as the Twelve, and therefore that she was somehow necessarily involved in what we would consider the, the uh, prototype of uh, holy orders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think those are scholarly questions that are, are difficult, and, and people make decisions about them on the basis of their competence for reading the scriptural text and interpreting it, whether it means Juni was among the apostles or she was valued by the apostles, all those things Father Fitzmaier says it doesn't necessarily mean she was herself one, it just means she was valued by the apostles. Mm-hmm. But um, those are the kind of technical questions that, that have laid the uh, whole argument open to further agitation because people will say, well, wait a minute here, I found this example, I found this little... Um, uh, inscription on some ancient tomb, you know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All of this is somehow going to undo undo 2,000 years of a steady tradition with clear teaching and, and practice that was uh, uncontested, you know. And I think that's the, the real key. That's where tradition... We are people, we are, we are people of the Word, but it's the Word of, of Scripture and tradition. The Church's life really stems from those two aspects. Right, and that the tradition has the... Uh, a kind of authority for us that that helps us to understand what the meaning of the scripture is, and that we rely on it. We can rely on it, and especially when the magisterium uh, teaches definitively uh, about some interpretation, we can count on that. I just think that the Catholic priesthood and women, again, you do such a wonderful job of laying out all the different possible objections, but also the clear teaching and the Church's fundamental reasons and theological arguments. I mean, it's so beautifully done, Sister. Well, I'm very glad that you read it and that you uh, felt it was intelligible to you, or I hope uh, persuasive. I would like it to be. My idea was to write up something for seminarians in particular, but also people who are seriously interested in searching this out and understanding it. Glad to know it made sense to you. Right. Well, Sister, I mean, I, I think it's very important because, of course, the uh, the secular media and stuff seems to be in a hurry to give a platform to anyone who disagrees with the church from women being ordained on a barge in Pittsburgh to, uh, you know, married priests who, uh, you know, want to want to pick a bone. They seem to readily get a platform uh, in the secular media to trash the Catholic Church and, and all of our teaching and truth. So this is a, a, a wonderful book and a way for everyone to really clearly understand uh, what the Catholic priesthood and women is all about. Well, thank, thank you very much, Bruce. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> it will be a help to uh, heal some differences we have. Mm-hmm. And it really is. I mean, just your own sis- uh, journey, sister. I mean, as someone who, being a part of a task force that originally came to the assumption that 
there was evidence favoring the admission of women to priestly ordination. And just your own journey over the last 30 years to come to the conclusions that you have and to be very at peace with that. I think there are still many, many women who are still struggling with that. Well, I, I think there are, and I, I do think that it's not easy to overcome the objections, especially if you hear you know, a whole bunch of obje- objections uh, and they begin to uh, amass themselves. It seems like, you know, impenetrable and impossible to refute them, and, and I think many people just give up, you know, right. mm-hmm. and, and they go with what seems to be the sort of common-sense logic, but that's really not going to help them uh, here. If it leads them to think that the Church has been wrong, then they're, then they're likely to be um, lose touch with the, the Church's teaching on other issues, too, because maybe the authority of the Church is eroded by that kind of uh, dissent, you know, yeah. even if it's not public and even if it's not thought out and, and deliberate, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in America, I think we are, we don't like to hear no more discussion. <laughs> we don't want to hear that oh, right. this no, is it, and here, here's the definitive teaching, and it's not, and as you've laid out, it's not that the church hasn't given every example. I mean, we're, we're parents, we have three teenage kids, and mm-hmm. there gets to be a point where you have to say, we've already spoken, we've just talked about this enough. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> We're no longer going to argue about this because all it's doing is being destructive. My father used to say, Father has spoken, you know. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's what happens is here, and, it's, and there's so much that we can go back and look at the teachings and come to understand why it is the way it is. And, and I think there's a beauty in that. Again, the priesthood is not just another leadership role. No, no, and, and that's really what in the original... Uh, document that came out under Paul VI the, from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, there was a commentary released with it, and at the back of the commentary it says, if we really pursue this and think it through, we will come to a better appreciation of the priesthood. And I think that's true. That's really what happened to me. Yeah, it's, it's not about men against women or men trying to put down women or trying to have, it's, it's more about the gift that, that Christ has instituted for us. Exactly. For both male and female. Well, Sister Sarah Butler, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, We do appreciate it. Her book again, The Catholic Priesthood and Women, A Guide to the Teaching of the Church, Sister Sarah Butler. Thank you, Sister, and uh, God bless. We appreciate your being with us in our audience. It was very nice to be your guest.